We have come before the throne room of God. Here we stand at the foot of that throne ready to to bring our petitions to the Lord, ready to hear his word. And what we find from uh, the mouths of this pilgrim people that's come before the throne of God is Lamentations 4. Lamentations 4, that is our text this morning, found on page 874 of your pew Bibles. It may surprise us that as we've entered God's very presence, what would we find on the lips of the people as they bring before the Lord their words, but actually a lament? And this is a good reminder that the love of God, our covenant relationship with him, doesn't just bring us into his presence that we would only just extol him in words, that is what we are doing, but as well that we would bring before him our sorrows, our laments. That's the graciousness of God. You might think that as we have approached this throne of God that we would only be able to to cower in his presence. And though we respect and, and reverence him, we bring our very heart to him. And this is what we have in Lamentations 4. Let's ask for God's blessing before we read. Lord God in heaven, we... Read these words, these inspired words from your very mouth, breathed out by by you into the author and to a human author who has who has encapsulated the hearts of a of a fallen people, of a rebellious people who are still seeking the Lord. This is so wonderful for we are these very people. We are those who have been rebellious, rebellious in Adam, rebellious in our own sins. And so as a rebellious, sinful people, we see what we can bring before you. We see the pain we can express in your presence as well as what your word gives, the good news of of comfort. May we see then the gospel here, the gospel of your son, amidst the pain, and a, a very deep pain. We ask this in your name. Amen. Lamentations 4, beginning in verse 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that a foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. 
This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our, own, in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish He will uncover your sins. Ascends the reading of God's word. Perhaps you have thought of this in your own times of grief. You reached a point of clarity, a point of a breath of fresh air, a point where you saw the Lord, where you seemed to be at peace. And then it seemed to grow again back into pain, back into the worst situation you've ever experienced, back into all that you thought you had left behind. And you might say something like, I thought I was doing better, but now I'm worse than ever. It's a very natural situation, a reflection of what we experience, a reflection not only in suffering and trials, a reflection in grief. I believe this is what the, the, the very structure of Lamentations is getting at. You reached that center in Lamentations 3, and, and even last time as we were looking at the end of chapter 3, we've seen that, that, that top of the hill, that mountaintop experience on verses 24 through 33 of chapter 3 have, have passed. And you're now just wondering, well, how far back will we descend? And, and chapter 4 just goes right seemingly back into the midst of despair. It picks up where it left off in chapter 2, beginning with the same word, how, or could translate it, alas, or woe. Again, back to the woes. And, and does this not reflect that heart that, that seems for a moment to have reached above the floodwaters, reached above the drowning, gasped in a breath of fresh air, only to have yourself plunge again into pain and despair? If we were writing the book of Lamentations. If I was writing the book of Lamentations, I would have probably wanted it to end in chapter 3, to end on that mountaintop where we could see the land before us, see the will of God in this clarity. But that's actually not what we need. What we need is a book that travels with us all the pathway of life, that travels back into lament and despair. And this is what the people experience, even at the prophet's own mouth. We see here a winding down of the lament. 
You would notice that this chapter is still a poem. It's still 22 verses like chapters 1 and 2. It's still an acrostic. still follows the Hebrew alphabet, but it's shorter. It has less lines in it. And this likely reflects that the lamenter is either just winding down or he's becoming exhausted or, or that he's set enough. He's reaching the end. And so it's, it's fading away, but it comes back into this grief. And what I want us to know as we go through it, what I want us to keep in our minds is this. Though you may go through a downward spiral of woe, and that's what we see here, though you may go through a downward spiral of woe, know the Lord will complete his discipline and turn and face your enemies. We'll pick that up later and explain it, but I want that in our minds now. A downward spiral, but holding to a truth, the truth that the Lord will stand up, rise up, and defend us against our enemies. And we'll see that as we go through. I want to go through these verses, verse by verse, that we would understand the imagery here, understand what's meaning. We have four points this morning. Zion's disintegration. Zion's disintegration, that's our first point in verses 1 through 11. Then Zion's culprits in verses 12 through 16. Then Zion's hopelessness in verses 17 through 20. And then our last point, Zion's wheel and Edom's woe in verses 21 and 22. So first, Zion's disintegration in verses 1 to 11. That point says it all. What you see here is an utter unraveling, a disintegration, a downward spiral of everything that had been great but is now completely destroyed. It, it just continues this vast descent into what they've experienced, saying, look at what we had been to what we are now. Verse 1, the gold grows dim. If you know anything about gold, you would know that gold does not grow dim Gold is one of the only things that does not actually tarnish. It's not supposed to be able to tarnish. It is that precious metal, and yet the gold is growing dim. And the precious stones are scattered. What is this referring to? Likely it's referring to the very temple of God, the very house of God that was encapsulated in that gold. But, but the gold that was pure, the gold that seemed to be unable to tarnish, is lo and behold, tarnished. It's dim. It's scattered. What was precious is lost. Verse 2 turns to the sons of Zion, the people who were worth their own weight in gold, who were supposed to be precious to the Lord, who were themselves supposed to, to be steady and per persevering in the presence of God, and yet they've been changed to clay pots. Those who once valuable now would be commonplace. That which was once precious and set apart for holy use has become every day run-of-the-mill ordinary, a clay pot. Nothing to brag about, nothing to be precious, something to be left outside and not cared about. Verse 3, you see a comparison between the animals of the world and what Judah has become. Jackals are not regarded with favor. They're scavengers. They're, they're not looked upon to be compassionate animals, and yet even they nurse their young. Yet even they care for their children, and yet the people of God can't. The people of God can't even care for their children. And compares them to ostriches. Ostriches were considered cruel in that day and age. They were those who would leave the nest, leave their eggs. And, and it was perceived then that the ostrich was one of the cruelest of the animals. It would forsake its young. And, and that is what the people have been led to do. They've been put in the situation where they're no better than an ostrich. They're, they're worse than a jackal. 
They haven't even cared for their children. And this is a very, very literal issue. This was a very real problem that the destruction of the land brought. Think, moms and dads, think of this. You were unable to protect your children. Some of your children were ripped from your very midst and taken into exile for you to most likely never, ever see them again and not know what would happen to them. Some of your children died from starvation and you couldn't feed them. And it gets even worse than that as we continue. But this is, this is what has happened to your very, very kids. And, and you see in yourself that you have become worse than the worst of animals. You can't even provide. Verse 4 heightens that picture. It's the very sad picture of a nursing infant that is so parched and famished it can't even suck. It can't even make a sound. It can't even cry. Because the, the mother, the nursing mother, can't, is so malnourished herself, she can't even provide. And so this, this child is, is literally wasting away, is dying for lack of, of food. Verse 5 continues, This downfall and disintegration wasn't just among the poor people. It wasn't just among those who couldn't afford it. It wasn't just a segment of the society. It was those who once feasted and ate the best of food. The rich... The nobles, the powerful, they are lying dead in the streets. That's the imagery. Verse, verse 5 shows that they once wore expensive, fine purple clothing, but instead now they're covered in ash and soot. In fact, what you thought once was a regal purple robe, you now pass this person on the street, he who had dined in the presence of the king perhaps, he who was royal or part of that household, now you pass in that purple brilliant robe, you, it looks black can't even distinguish the, the purple dye and coloring that made it expensive. It's as grubby as your own garment. Verse 6 shows the punishment Judah has endured is worse than Sodom. Worse than Sodom. This is what the people are saying. They're, they're speaking to God. The prophet is speaking on behalf of the people of God and sees that they are worse than the very city representing the worst of men. You see, the, the sins of Sodom were well known, but it wasn't only homosexuality. That was the, the clearest representation in the story from Genesis, and it is truly what, what they were judged for. But amongst that, it was, it was other things as well, because they were, they were totally turned over to sin, this city. It was a, a representation of the pure wickedness of man, sort of like the pre-flood experience of those who did what was right in their own eyes. And that's what we see in Sodom. And can it be? That the people of God face a worse punishment than they? It's true. They do. Why? The, the verse explains. You see, their transgression was punished quickly. Sodom perished quickly. It, it, it perished in, overnight in a day. But the people of the Lord have been squeezed and wrung out. Over a period, a long period of time, they've been famished. The, the verses even say it, would, it was better for those who died in the war, it was better for those who died by the hand of a sword than to be famished and starving to death. You, the, the fact that their punishment is worse than Sodom would also imply that their, their, their deeds were worse. Their deeds were, in fact, judged more severely because they had a greater, they had a greater uh, sin on their hands a rejection of the God they had served, a covenant God who had, who had taken this people and called them out, they rebelled against. And so, yes, their judgment is worse because their crime was more severe. 
They who knew better turned from God. They who were married to God in covenant cheated on him, divorced him. Far worse than what the unbelievers in the world do, and so they're judged there. Verses 7 and 8 describe the best of the people of Israel, beautiful in appearance, healthy of form, and they're not even recognizable anymore. The very youth, the very opulence of society is not recognizable from those who are as poor as ever You see how skillfully what this poem is doing is bringing us down that spiral, disintegration, everything's falling. Notice the imagery of this poem and the material and colors. Every single thing is is on its way down. Everything's falling apart. We we began with what was precious, but that's tarnished and lost. You you have the coloring that is, is, is fading away. You had the colors that were purple and ruddy and white and sapphire blue, and, and that's become black and soot covered. Everything's falling apart. The wealthy are now gutter rats. Verse 10 reaches its lowest point. Even compassionate women have boiled their own children for food. Even compassionate women. It's saying compassionate there because it's not saying the crazed women of the city. It's not saying the unloving women of the city who didn't care that they did that. No, it's, it's women who cared. Even those women who had been compassionate cannibalized their own children, perhaps after they had died, unable to take nutrition from their own breasts. It's a horrible picture a complete downward spiral of what they've experienced. And all of this is described in verse 11. Verse 11, what does that say? The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Foundations shouldn't be that which could be touched by fire. Fire would not normally consume foundations, so that means this fire and wrath of God is so great that poetically the prophet is saying here that the very rock of the earth, what they had built the city on, was so judged that it's gone. And like the foundation was made of wood, it's consumed, it's gone, the foundation is lost, and all of this is because the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. Now notice a couple things from that verse. It's not intended to say that the Lord is a heinous, wicked God. Rather, it's to describe how horrible judgment is even rightly deserved. There are those who uh, would say to us, well, I have friends in heaven, I have friends in hell, I'm okay with going anywhere. Rather arrogant statements as they live in this life, as they try to put up a false front of bravado and say, hell, it's not that bad. I'm not scared. I'm not frightened. I'll take my chances. I think verses 1 through 11 describe something very hellish. Something extremely sad, because it is the full vent of the wrath of God, rightly deserved. Rightly deserved. This is what the people had done. And so they fall into this, this downward, absolute disillusion, absolute destruction of all that was theirs because they had turned from the only way of salvation, because they had been turned over to that sin, just like Sodom was. 
You see, the people are reflecting and making this appeal after they've, they've seen the destruction come, they've seen the discipline come, and now they recognize that what they were doing before this was wrong. But if this hadn't have happened, if God would not have struck the people so severely, they would have waltzed their way down this destructive path. They would have continued to blaspheme and dishonor God. They would have led their children continuously into hell itself, even worse than what is this hell on earth. That's what would have happened. And we see that. We see that in our second point, Zion's culprits in verses 12 through 16. Zion's culprits. Verse 12 describes a very interesting belief at the time that even the other nations around seem to share, and that is that Jerusalem, Jerusalem is unassailable. That God would, would never allow this city to fall. We've talked about that before, but here you see it so plainly there. The kings of the earth did not even believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. You see, the people were clinging to this hope. They were clinging into actually what is a promise of covenantal hope and obedience that God would never let the nations destroy them. But that promise was for covenant faithfulness for those who, who believed in the Lord and they turned away. What they were describing then was in one sense a very true doctrine. That for the faithful of the Lord, they would never be overwhelmed, but they aren't the faithful of the Lord. They've apostatized, they've turned away, they've rejected God, they've turned to other gods, they've made false images of God, they've worshipped him incorrectly, they didn't care about him. Who are the culprits? It's those who are teaching them. And so what was thought to be un untenable was even thought to be a blasphemous idea that God could so reject the people that Jerusalem would fall occurred. And they were wrong to think it. Verse 13 explains the culprits behind this. It's the prophets and the priests. It's the rulers, it's the officers of the people. Now the people were complicit in this. The people we know from all of Scripture went along. They, they are guilty as well. They're not innocent parties, but they were well represented by their officers. And where does Scripture lay the blame? Who are the culprits really? The officers of Christ. It's not wrong to put it that way. The, the office of prophet, the office of priest, is, is representative of who Christ is. They were supposed to be Christ to the people of the Old Testament. That's who they were, and they've turned false. They led astray. They were not the mediators that were needed. They had fled from the word of God and so led the people into absolute destruction. And, and how? How did they do this? Because they were teaching and telling the people, you're fine. God is with us. Don't change your behavior. God won't strike us down. In fact, as the verses go on to describe, they butchered, they executed the faithful in the streets, those who would say that, no, God is judging, we are being unfaithful. The Jeremiah's of the day, they were persecuting. That's where the blame falls, the, the sins of the prophets, the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. We actually see this. Jeremiah 26, verse 11 says... Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man, referring to Jeremiah, This man deserves the sentence of death 
because he's prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. And later in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, in verses 20 to 30, it actually tells of another prophet of God who proclaimed faithfully the same message who was executed. And so this was quite literally what they did. They are tainted with the blood of the faithful, the blood of the faithful mouthpieces of God that those who occupied the formal office destroyed and killed. Verses 14 through 16 are hard to interpret. They're hard to translate for a variety of reasons. But it seems that the best explanation would be that these prophets, these priests, the officers of the people at that time became so untouchable in the judgment, so blood-covered, that the nations themselves would tell them that you're unclean, depart from us. Now that's how wicked they are. But verse 13 is clear enough that the people have been polluted and polluted by their very leaders. And, and what this shows you is, is a couple things, one of which is the desperate need for righteous leaders, the desperate need for righteous officers. Satan has polluted and affected the church in, in this way from the beginning by polluting even the sacred offices that God has given. And, and so how do the people of God respond? Well, the people of God respond by not only praying for their leaders, praying for righteous men, Praying for those in their midst, but as well understanding and knowing God's word enough to be able to spot the wolves amongst the sheep. To be able to spot those who are not actually proclaiming what is right and good. To, to gravitate, to, to listen to the prophet Jeremiah and to Isaiah and what he had spoken and not what these false prophets say. But we see the, the need for true officers. Pray for them, people of God. The, the offices continue not as, not as constructed and prophet and priest, but those who are mouthpieces for the people of God, those who are elders, those who serve the church. Look at the, the danger that creeps in the church from those who are its leaders. We see it in our day. We see it from those who have misled by a man, by, by perhaps one man who is very charismatic, very, very strong, and he seems to lead the men well, but what it is is he's a false leader. He's a false mouthpiece of God, sowing destruction. That's the judgment that can be led to. But, there, but there's something else to see from this, and that is our desperate need for Christ. Oh, our desperate need for Christ. You see how the people fell because they didn't have their true leader, their true mediator. They fell. They, they didn't see that they could, they could grasp him through the ceremonies, the offices of the Old Testament, through sacrifice, through the word of God. They could grasp this mediator, but he wasn't there yet. They didn't take hold of him, and so they were led astray. Our desperate need for Christ in this. And so we see Zion's culprits, but we also see Zion's hopelessness in verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, they, they sought for their salvation from a distant nation. Likely, this is a reference to Egypt. They had courted Egypt. They were hoping that Egypt would defend them against the, the, against the, the Babylonians, against those who were coming to destroy them. Let's seek out Egypt. It was wrong. They weren't supposed to ever return to Egypt. They weren't supposed to make covenants with foreign nations. To do so was to make covenants with their gods. To make a, a union with these pagan tribes and peoples was to accept and adopt even their gods for your deliverance. It's rebellion, it's, it's adultery against God, but that is what they had sought. They sought Egypt, and Egypt proved to be a vain hope. 
And then verse 20 is the bitter end of their hopelessness. It says, The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. What's this referring to? It's referring to the king of the people. It's referring to their king, the, the line of David, the house of David. That at least if they had him, their city would stand. At least if they had him, everything else might fall. The nations might be surrounded them. The nations might overshadow them. But if they had their king, they had hope. Their king's gone. Literally happened. Zedekiah, their king, the the last of the, the kings of Israel, fell. He fled finally from the siege, but was captured. He was the hope of the nations, as this text says, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. Zedekiah was a wicked king, and yet even this verse says that he was the Messiah of the people. Why? Because he inhabited the office of Christ. He was of the house of David. He, he was to be their deliverer and king, but he as well was false. And, and so just as we saw with the prophets and priests, we see with the king the need for the true king the failures of those who are false and wicked and how they reap destruction among the people because it's again true, it's true that if they had the true anointed of God, they would stand. But people of God, that is what we have. As we go through Lamentations, you could think, you might be afraid, what if this were to happen to us? Well, we can be assured this could never happen to the people who cling to Christ. Not that laments can't happen. Not that pain can't happen, but that you would be forsaken by your own anointed. No, you can't. By turning to Christ, by turning to the breath of our nostrils, the life within us is the Lord's anointed. But at that time, he was captured in pits. Jeremiah 39, 4-7 even describes this, describes the way Zedekiah and his court had fled the siege but were captured by Nebuchadnezzar. It says, When Zedekiah finally fled the siege and the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes along with all the nobles of Judah, then he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Scripture will use that terminology of the Lord's anointed, the Lord's chosen, even of those who were unfaithful because they were supposed to fill that office of Christ. One author says it well. Verse 20 seems to put the nail in the coffin, utter hopelessness, by speaking of a rupture in David's house. Such a thing had never happened in the centuries-long history of the royal line. Is this the end? That's what the people think. Is this it? And yet, this author continues, and yet, does the sequence of being hunted, trapped in a pit, facing an inescapable end, jog our memories? This was precisely the experience recounted by the prophet in the previous chapter, in verses 52 to 54, of a prophet in a pit, drowning seemingly without hope, who turned to the Lord and was delivered. 
And so you see, even in, in that tie into there, there, there's hope there because, hey, if the prophet did this, can't we? If the prophet was delivered, won't we be? You see, at the, the, the utter end of their hopelessness, they've, they've gone as far down as you can go. They see the prophet's words that he had gone and done the same. And in his testimony, they saw that the Lord would answer, that the Lord came to the prophet and said, Do not fear. And remember, that was in the context when the prophet was telling the people, Repent, turn back to the Lord. And so we see, finally, Zion's weal and Edom's woe in verses 21 to 22. Weal and woe. Weal is a blessing. Woe is judgment. So this is Zion's blessing and Edom's judgment. These last two verses are significant, just as the last two verses of all of the poems of Lamentations are significant. It sort of sort of follows the, the emotional decline, the heart of the people in the previous verses, and then in the last two verses, it, it usually brings a request to God. It usually presents something of importance, and here we see the ray of hope, the way, ray of hope that was absent from chapters 1 and 2. And what is this hope? That God would rise up and judge their enemies. You see, the lament turns now into a petition to the Lord that he would rise up. It's not even just a petition, but a, a belief that this is what God would do. He'd rise up and judge Edom. Edom are the descendants of Esau, people close to them who inhabited the land with them. Why? It seems strange why Babylon's afflicting them, and yet they talk about the curses of Edom. Well, Edom represented all the enemies of God because they were a particularly reprehensible relationship to the people. Those who came from a common ancestor, from Isaac through Esau, they, they, they descended from that family line. They were those who wanted nothing but the destruction of the people of God. They, at this time, aided Nebuchadnezzar. They would capture refugees and turn them back. They aided the, the destruction of Jerusalem. They rejoiced over it. They sought to pillage the people afterwards. This was Edom, and so representative of all the people, and particularly their neighbor, who is this insidious, they promised destruction and judgment. All of a sudden, from these torn lips that are too dried from famine and grief to speak anything else, comes this statement of faith. That if I could paraphrase this verse, it would mean Basically, they're telling Edom, laugh now, but you're going to get what's coming to you. Laugh now, you're going to get what's coming to you. The wrath of God that we just drank, that cup, is coming upon you. And in fact, you will drink it. You will be so intoxicated with it. You will so drink the cup of wrath that you will be shamed before all. You will be drunk in the streets. That's how much of the wrath of God they will, they will have and will face. Now, now why is that significant? At the end of this long downward spiral comes this statement. Well, it's significant because it means that they trust that God would rise up and defend them. And you see that in the last verse, verse 22, that continued this line of hope. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Finally, we see the people have looked upon and determined the judgment of God has been spent. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they won't face years of exile. It does mean, though, that the intensity of this exile, the judgment and this, this cup of wrath in this acuteness and this acute way has passed. And they will return and God will be with them. We began the service with that statement, though we may go through a downward spiral of woe, know the Lord will complete his discipline and turn to face our enemies. On the surface, that might not sound like an amazing truth, but that is, and it's one of profound hope, because what it means is that the covenant is still intact. What it means is that God would count as an enemy the enemy of his people. And that God had a purpose for what he was doing. You see the the rays of hope, the rays of the covenant that still shine here. And they're still intact. They're still there. The people can turn, and now they can even say from this position of having tasted the wrath of God to their enemies, you're next. Though we may go through a downward spiral of woe, and, and this can be for many reasons. For Israel, here it was their sin. And we can experience that for our sin. We can experience a downward spiral of woe for other reasons. You can think of like Job. There may be other reasons we face these laments. But know this. God will accomplish and complete his discipline of his people and turn and face your enemies. In that day and age, it was really tangible enemies, nations, armies, other lords that they needed to fight against, those the Lord would turn up against. But this is even true of any of those who oppose God's people. Sin itself, the Lord will accomplish his purposes and turn against that which is afflicting you, that which isn't right and true and good. The Lord accomplishes his purpose and rises up. But you know what this means? Our faith must be exercised in circumstances where the final resolution of the tragedy hasn't occurred. Our faith must operate when it hasn't been fixed yet. And that's what the people of Israel are called to do. This is the point of the downward spiral. You see how far they went, and it is from that point, it is from the pit, at the bottom of that downward spiral of woe, where faith needed to operate. And what it meant, too, was that the people here would have to cling to the word of God. It meant as well that it's significant because they placed their faith in the right and true prophets of God who had been up to this point proclaiming that there would be judgment to come and they would drink the cup of wrath, but that God would judge their enemies and they would return. And so to say this prayer is a statement of faith. It's a statement of trust in the revelation and word of God. And it's as well, it's, it's gone past what was the flimsy faith of verses 12 and 13. And, and those who believed that their city couldn't be destroyed, it was, it was a flimsy idea of the faithfulness of God. But now, through striking them so severely, God is giving the people the opportunity to learn his faithfulness that isn't tied to some city and that will extend into exile itself. But that faith couldn't proceed on sight. It had to come from a heart that trusted in the mere word of God alone, just as ours does. Just as we cling to to faith in a Christ and into a Savior who we did not see come, but hear in God's word revealed. 
of a Savior that we cannot right now reach out and touch physically, that we cannot see with our eyes, but who we know in our heart. Sometimes our faith needs to be so afflicted. I want to end with a a statement, as I did last time, uh, from Pastor Dale Ralph Davis, who concludes this section on Lamentations well. He says, Where's the faith of chapter 3? Shouldn't that make a difference here? Sometimes we reach a point of faith that then goes behind a cloud. Sometimes there are those among us who think we can reach such levels of faith that circumstances won't ever diminish it or eclipse it, as if we can reach levels of faith that can be unaffected and constant, and that our faith will shine as bright as it ever did, and that there should be no pitfalls of faith. He explains this idea as as we are Christians who want higher ground. We expect that we can reach higher ground, where we we should be above the, the pains and laments that our faith should reach so high, where we can kind of put it on semi automatic pilot. We can we can flip the switch because our faith has reached such levels that nothing can affect us. He says that. We have difficulties and distress and we want to reach a plateau where things don't really ruffle us so much anymore and we can have a certain stability and maturity. We know we'll have ups and downs and flip-flops, but we, we, we pray, we hope we can reach a point that these won't affect us. Now, I won't deny there is an element of truth about such a faith. But I think he explains it well. When we don't, when we don't want, want to walk through Lamentations 4 again, when we, when we don't want to even feel our faith overwhelmed by sorrow or grief or pain, he says, I think this attitude is a sort of idolatry. We end up looking for a formula. We end up looking for a key to the Christian life that we can use maybe instead of looking for Christ. God gives us Jesus, and sometimes we aren't satisfied with that. We want a technique or a retreat to learn the secret of soul-learning faith that we won't ever falter. You can look to these and not keep your eyes on Jesus because we substitute them for him. You see, there are times when our faith will go into the shadow and may not shine very brightly But like the sun, just because it's behind a cloud, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just not apparent at the time. How true. You see, God doesn't give us these plateaus of faith as if we cannot be affected by what we face. Look no further than Jesus for that. His faith did not make him an unfeeling robot. He felt pain. He felt a sort of fear. I say sort of because I'm not saying he sinned in, in an anxious way, but he felt a sort of fear, a desire not to go through something, a great amount of pain and emotions, and he was the one who has perfect faith. We can't expect that Lamentations 3 won't go back into Lamentations 4. We can't expect that our faith can be so strong that it will make us a robot unaffected. That's not where we turn, and and we need to understand that truth of Lamentations. God takes us to places where all he wants us to do is lament to him. 
and to see our strength, or to see our faith strengthened and our love for him increase because we feel the mess, because we feel the pain. Our faith wouldn't grow if we didn't look up and see the cloud blocking it, as, as Davis compares it to the sun. But like he says, the sun is still there. And your faith can still be there even when there's a cloud in the way. And it seems shadowed. Because you're sorely afflicted, but know that God will accomplish his purpose. He will rise up. He will defend you. And the cloud does pass. And faith that is real will shine. Because God is faithful. He even uses the worst that can be experienced, maybe even little foretastes of, of hellish punishment to accomplish his goals for his people. And that's where we've, we've, we've continually come to that in this book. Because that's the point. Recognizing the pain, expressing it, and yet trusting in the faithfulness of God from the place where it's the most difficult to do it. Trust in the word of the Lord, people of God, and take what the people had negatively put forward as your faith. The breath of our nostrils is truly the Lord's anointed. And in the true king of God's people, in the true son of David, we stand and cannot be shaken. Amen. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you to praise your great name and to pray that you would give us such a faith that trusts that you will indeed prove faithful and stand. Help us to look truly to the, the prophet, the priest, the king, our Lord. Lord, help us see our sins that need confession. Help us turn our, our griefs and broken hearts to you and find here in the message of Lamentations that the message of your faithfulness. And Father, help, us, help it carry us through. We pray in your name. Amen.